one of the things that my faith helps me with particularly in the industry that I'm in is there's a real tendency I think to see yourself as the center of the universe and I think that is a really dangerous position to fall into and a very dangerous trap to fall into the profile you're listening to premier christian radio Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Marcus Jones. The Profile is the show where we sit down with a well-known Christian to hear more about their life, faith and ministry. It's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. The monthly title features more interviews just like this one, the latest news, reviews, columnists and more. To request a free sample copy of the latest issue, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Well, today on the show, I'm speaking to broadcaster Dan Walker, host of BBC Breakfast, as well as Match of the Day and Football Focus. Dan is one of the most recognisable faces on TV. A committed Christian, he refuses to work on Sundays, a stance which hasn't hindered his career. We'll discuss what his faith means to him, the worship song which helps him through difficult times, and his new book, Remarkable People. How do you reflect uh, personally on the year that we've just had? Uh, I'm not sure we'll forget 2020 in a hurry. Um, It's been a really interesting year, I think. Um, I started the year three weeks in. I sat down for half an hour um, with the Prime Minister on live TV on BBC Breakfast. And uh, we discussed all sorts of things, uh, but we never touched on... uh, what has become the story of the year, which is obviously coronavirus. And a few weeks after that, he was in hospital with it. Um, but I think it's the year has been dominated by that and our response to that. And um, you know, I've, as a father of three children who spent an awful lot of time at home, uh, I think it has, you know, there are, there have been some positives for us because one, we've, you know, we've not lost any members of our, um, close family to this horrible virus and we've spent more time with each other and it's been nice even though I've been thoroughly rubbish at algebra and trigonometry it's been um, you know it's been nice to spend a bit of time with the kids doing some homeschooling but I think everybody is desperate for a slice of normality and to stop wearing masks and to be able to hug friends and you know loved ones again so um, yeah it's, it's certainly a year to remember but I'm not sure all of those memories will be particularly positive. Hmm. Well, in the middle of what's been a crazy year, you have managed to to write a book, to complete a book. Mm. Um, tell us where this idea came from, because you do touch upon coronavirus, but I'm guessing this book was in the works perhaps before the pandemic hit. Yeah, I was actually asked to write an autobiography, and um, that sounded vile to me, because I'd, I'd much rather write about other people than write about myself. So I sort of um, went back to the publishers and said, um, can I come up with a better idea? I always think if you if there's an idea you're not sure about it, come up with a better idea and it normally goes down well. So I, I went back to them and said, can I write about other people instead? And they said, okay, who are you thinking of? So I, I told them about some of my chapter ideas and who I would want to write about. And it's just about people who've sort of stuck in my mind over the last 20 odd years of broadcasting and being a journalist. The people who I still think about, wonder if they're okay um, and want to catch up with really. So those are the people that feature in the book, people who have inspired me for various reasons. And um, what's been amazing is 
the feedback has sort of blown me away, really. The, the number of people who have been inspired themselves by reading about these people. And they've all, all of them in there with various uh, different stories have been through something and come out the other side. You know, they've, they've sort of experienced great darkness in their life, whatever that might look like, and somehow managed to crawl towards the light. And even though many of them don't find themselves to be inspirational, that's what they are. They've inspired me and they've um, managed to inspire lots of people who've read the book as well, which is, um, yeah, more than I ever dreamed of, really. So it's called Remarkable People. What makes a person mm. remarkable? Very good question. Um, and I, I've been sort of privileged over the years to have, you know, I've interviewed huge sports stars and prime ministers, princes, kings, queens, all these important people in various parts of the world, but none of them are in the book. Um, and that's not to say they're not remarkable because they probably are in a certainly different way. But these people in the book are, I think, the people who stick with you, um, the people who you think, I wonder how they're getting on. That's how I, that's how I judge it, because I've seen something in them in the way that they have either dealt with adversity or inspired those around them by either the way they've acted or um you know things that they have they have said and and uh, a difference that they have made those are the people i find remarkable and um these people like the first chapter is about an amazing woman called lisa ashton and another woman called winnie mabasso and winnie uh, was in south africa in a township outside Johannesburg and she was feeding 500 people. She was feeding 500 kids out of a single bowl of soup every day. And um, Lisa was a researcher on a BBC TV programme and um, she saw this woman and wondered what she was doing, was sort of fascinated by her. And at night she laid out mattresses for the kids to sleep on. And um, Lisa became infatuated with her really. And uh, she turned her life upside down because Lisa started raising money. They found an orphanage a house to buy started looking after children Winnie then sadly passed away and Lisa took that full responsibility on herself and I visited that orphanage in 2010 as part of our coverage of the World Cup in South Africa and I've stayed in contact with Lisa and the orphanage there ever since and I think what I find incredible about Lisa is we all come across people in our lives who make us think about what we do and why we do it and you know you might be touched by an amazing cause today on the program we're you know, looking at uh, Kevin Sinfield, who's running these seven marathons in seven days for his friend Rob Burrow, which is a lovely story about friendship and loyalty. And many people have been moved to give five pounds, ten pounds, whatever it might be. But what Lisa has done is she's gone beyond that and thought, rather than just give my money to support this course, I'm going to give my time and my life and everything. And I think that that is a, a, a next level of dedication. And I've I, I see the work that she has done in the lives of these kids who've been through some awful abuse and all sorts of things in their in their young lives. And Lisa is changing those lives for the better. And, um, you know, she is she is one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book, to, to tell her story, because she is remarkable. And, um, and the more people know about that, the better. We'll unpack some of the uh, things that come up in the book um, shortly. But in the, the book, you write that your faith was uh, challenged and strengthened through the process of writing. Just tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, I, I think I've, I've had a, I would describe myself as somebody who has a strong faith, um, but I, I always think it's healthy to ask questions. And um, 
Now, I, I often meet people and, and see how they go about their business. And that makes me, you know, question how I choose to do things. And in reading this, in writing this book and seeing how some people who have the same faith as me and some who have none whatsoever, um, how they deal with adversity. And as a, as a Christian, I, I look at that and I think, I don't think I could cope with what some of these people have been through without my faith. Um, and, you know, those Christians in the book, like John Sutherland, the, um, the police officer who actually, bizarrely, I met at a Christmas carol service many years ago, and he gave an address at that service. And it was so poignant and so sort of perfect that I just remember thinking that night, he is somebody whose advice I will need at some stage. And he's been a real sort of rock and a, a point of wisdom for many years, um, John. And I have great admiration for him as somebody who has gone into the police service and survived intact. Well, you know, he, he had a, a sort of mental breakdown, but he's, his faith has survived intact despite the fact he's been through all that. Um, so I think it it's it's made me ask you know questions and um, you know important questions which I think we should all ask ourselves. But it's also reminded me of the perspective, the foundation that my faith gives me in my life, and um, I suppose I suppose strengthened it in that it, it has reminded me of the importance of that. In that that's what makes me tick, what makes me get up in the morning, what informs who I am, where I want to be, my hopes, my dreams, my ambitions, all those sorts of things. So it's it's reminded me of how integral it is to my own existence, really. I wouldn't describe the book as a, a Christian book, but there are certainly themes within there which are of, of particular interest. You mentioned one, that idea of light in the, the darkness. The other one is hope that comes through in, in so many of these uh, stories. Um, why is it important to get some of those themes uh, across um, for you? Um, again, I never really intended it to be like that. I was just trying to write um, how I'd found these people and then um, talk about their impact on me. And I suppose that's out of that has come some of the themes that you were talking about. And I think hope is a really important one. And again, I never intended the book to be written as sort of an antidote to what we're all going through in 2020. But some of the responses to the book from people who read it has been exactly that, you know, that sort of this is exactly what I needed or, um, you know, after the year that we've had, I needed to realise that there are people out there who are quietly doing amazing things in small corners of the world. And I think um, there is real hope in there that um, there are some people who have been faced with real trials and real difficulties in life, and yet they are able to be broken, but be brilliant at the same time. And, you know, the book for me is a real reminder that struggling is is not failing and struggle and strife is something which I think which unites us all as, as humans, because we all go through really difficult times. It's something which we all experience. We know what that feeling is like and we know what that feeling is like. And we see it in other people as well. And it's a huge unifying force in the same way that joy and you know other emotions are as well. Um, but I think. Uh, some of those themes that come through in the various chapters. That's just the way it came out. I, again, I, what, one thing I really wanted to do was make sure that I didn't leave a chapter on a low um, because there's, you know, for example, the, the mother Ilsa stay at Fieldsend um, in the chapter about organ donation. 
she is a mum who lost her daughter, Georgia, who was three. She died on Christmas Day um, when they were on holiday in Egypt from a brain aneurysm. And she and her husband, James, had to make this awful decision about um, not only choosing to end their daughter's life by pulling the plug on her life support machine, but also decide whether they wanted to donate her organs on her deathbed. And I can't imagine as a parent what that sort of decision was like, but they decided to do that. And um, they saved the lives of four other children that night by harvesting George's organs. Um, you know, and that emotion of saying goodbye to your dearest daughter. Um, and they even donated her eyeballs. And there were two lads in their 20s who can see now because they made that choice. And that helps Ilsa to come to terms with what happens. But she, in her mind, is still the mother of two children. Um, her son, Joshua, as well, who still misses his sister. And I don't think, you know, Ilsa will ever be able to come to terms with that and fully reconcile that. But there's there's real hope in that chapter as well, because that is a mum who, even though she feels sometimes dead inside, she has inspired so many other people and saved the lives of other children through the sacrifice that her daughter Georgia made. So even in those darkest of chapters, I've tried to make sure that it finishes on and up. Lo loads of people have said to me, oh, I loved your book. I, I cried in every chapter. <laughs> Again, that was, wasn't my intention, but um, I just think, you know, life life is emotional and life does take us up there and, and, and down there. And um, that's something which we as humans all know the full scale of, of the emotions that we can go through. And I, I, I suppose I've just tried to tell people stories in the book effectively and, and accurately. And um, there is sadness in there, but there's also a lot of light and a lot of hope. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I can sympathise with that idea of um, struggling not to cry. Um, one of the stories that uh, I was most drawn to, particularly as a, as a Welshman and a, a sports mm. fan, was that of um, uh, Gary Speed, the footballer turned coach who tragically uh, took his own life not really a story about him but a story about his uh, his sons and, and, and what they went through in the chapter um you refer to the idea of spending your life looking for answers which are never there and i think for many um people of faith and none that can often be a difficulty when things go wrong and you kind of want to know why it's um it's particularly difficult just unpack that understanding of of suffering yeah i think there are certain things in life which I think we just have to accept we don't know definitively what happened and why it happened. And maybe we'll never know. And I think for many years, I um, struggled with finding those answers to what happened to Gary. Um, for those that don't know, he was a uh, you know really famous footballer and played with distinction for a number of clubs, Newcastle, Bolton, um, Sheffield United, Leeds, and... Um, was the Wales manager and I, know, I knew him as a player and as a pundit who I worked with quite regularly and got on with really well. And then he came on Football Focus, which is one of the programmes I present on a Saturday nine years ago. And the next morning, um, I got a phone call from a mutual friend, Alan Shearer, who was great friends with Gary and I knew well. And he said, Gary's gone. And um, that night after we'd spent six or seven hours together, he, he'd taken his own life. Um, well, the coroner would tell you that there was never enough evidence to to make that suggestion, but, you know, he, he's not here anymore. And um, I suppose in my own mind, I've gone through those conversations that day um, and asked myself as a friend, did I do enough as a Christian? Could I, do, could I have done more? Could I have said that something or done something that could have 
um, led to him still being here today. And um, I think that that is something which many people who have read the book have thankfully come back to me and said, those are the emotions that we all go through, those who've lost um, somebody in that way. Uh, you know, the guilt, the anger, the frustration, the, the questions, and some of them never go away. And I think the chapter is not about Gary, as you say, and it's not about my response to Gary. It's about his two sons, Tommy and Eddie, who were 14 and 13 when he died. And um, I never really intended to write about their dad or about them. But when I approached the family to see if I could mention their um, dad in another chapter, uh, the boys came back and said, we're, you know, we're ready to talk about it. And that sort of blew my mind a little bit because I thought, well, that's a huge responsibility. They've never spoken to anybody about the death of their dad before. Um, so I spoke to them for hours and hours and hours. And what I tried to do in the chapter is capture their brotherly love, if you know what I mean. So you hear their conversations as they have them. So they take the mickey out of each other and they, they flick as brothers do from being incredibly serious to very stupid um, and, you know, sort of uh, ripping each other apart. But at the essence of it all is are two young men who are now in their 20s who miss their dad. They loved him. He loved them. They don't think he was depressed. Uh, they think that you know, something went off in his mind that night. And for whatever reason, he decided he only had one option. And um, they feel, as Alan Shearer does, as Gary McAllister does, who was his other close friend who was sat with him on the football focus sofa that day, and his agent, Mel Chappell, who um, knew Gary sort of inside out, was really friendly with him. She's also in the book. They all feel that if somebody had got to Gary that night and spoken to him, then he'd still be here. Um, and his two sons have been through an awful lot, but they also have a real keen understanding that there are other people out there who've had a far worse existence than them. And their dad was able to give them a great life with great opportunities. And they're thankful for the time with him that they had. And they've gone through the same thing. You know, they have been angry and they're really honest about that. They're angry with him. They're frustrated with him. They want to know why, even though he loved them so much and they knew that, that he didn't want to be around anymore. Um, and I don't know whether they'll ever find the answers to those things, but they're also really aware of their own mental health and how, if they are struggling, then it's okay to ask questions and to talk about it. And I think they really care for each other and look after each other. And I think talking to them really helped me to sort of come to terms with some of the questions I was asking as well. And, um, they're two incredible young men. And I started off, you know, wondering how they would have reacted and what they were like. And I ended up being really inspired by meeting them really actually. And um, Eddie was 14 when he spoke at his dad's funeral and 14 when he spoke to a packed room at the Cardiff City Stadium at the Memorial match about six months after his dad died. And that particular speech stood on a table in the middle of that room was one of the most incredible things I've ever heard anybody say let alone a 14 year old boy just lost his dad so um yeah they are two remarkable young men and um at the essence of it all you know that Eddie's just got his degree in America and he just he wants his dad to ring him on his phone and tell him he's proud of him uh he knows that will never happen but that doesn't stop him from you know wanting that relationship back you say that the death of Gary Speeds um, changed the way that you think about your job, particularly when it comes mm. to interviewing. And 
you know, in the world of journalism, which is often cutthroat and you have to kind of get straight to the, the point and, and dig into people. Um, when you look at, you know, all the different news channels at the moment and the interviews with politicians, people are kind of really going after people. Just talk us through how you now approach the way that you speak to people when you interview them. Um, I don't think it stops me being able to ask difficult questions, but I think I'm always aware that you want to leave on good terms. Um, you know, that speaking to somebody might be the last time you speak to them. And I think that's an important thing, not to think about all the time, but just to have in the back of your head. You can still ask really difficult, pertinent questions, but do it in a way which isn't offensive um, and isn't horrible, if you know what I mean. Um, I can still be a, a good, thorough, accurate, fair journalist and still be concerned about people's mental well-being. Um, I don't think those two are mutually exclusive. Um, and if I did think that, I, wouldn't, I don't think I'd be doing the job that I do. Um, but it just, I, I don't think, I don't think having a concern for how somebody feels is a, is a, is a weakness at all. I think that's probably, I'd like to think that, that that is a strength and that makes me more empathetic and more understanding of where people are coming from. And it certainly hasn't uh, dulled my um, desire to talk about difficult subjects or speak to people who've really gone through the ringer. Um, but maybe it's, it's helped me to be more understanding and also be aware that judging people by what you see is never a good thing. And there's, there's often, and there can often be real struggles going on underneath the surface. And it's made me more, more aware of something which I'm often reminded of is the importance of asking whether friends and family, particularly people you know, are okay and not being happy with the first answer all the time and making sure that you give people the opportunity to tell you if they're struggling with something or if there's something they need to talk about. Because um, sometimes that first conversation, even, it, even if it might be a short one, can save a life. So I think that's... That's certainly a lasting legacy of, of that relationship. And I don't want to dwell too much on suffering because, like you say, the book is full of um, mm. hope. But there are plenty of stories of, of people's struggles and um, suffering. And it's not something that you've been immune from uh, either as a child. Um, uh, you write in the book you had a pre-diagnosis -di um, from the doctors. Then as a parent, you went through it um, as your daughter faced a, a life and death moment. How have you kind of relied on your faith um, to pull you through those moments? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think my most important thing about the, in those situations, I think my faith gives me a real perspective, I feel, and something I also think to cling on to that even if you feel the panic setting in, either about yourself or about family members or loved ones, I think... It's trusting that as hard as it can be sometimes that someone is in control. Um, and I also think that uh, one of the things that my faith helps me with, particularly in the industry that I'm in, is there's a real tendency, I think, to see yourself as the centre of the universe and the most important, you know, thing around which every, everything and everyone else revolves and 
I think that is a really dangerous position to fall into and a very dangerous trap to fall into. And I think remembering your place in the grand scheme of things and the importance of the um, impact that you can have on other people and the uh, idea that you are just a very small cog in a, in a very big machine, I think is really important to um, remind you not to be proud and to be aware of the importance of humility, I suppose. And also that idea that you have to ask for help. And I've, I don't see that as a, again, that's not a sign of, of weakness, I think. Um, that's an essential part of who we are as, as human beings. Um, so I think, yeah, those those things are all humbling experiences, but I think ultimately humbling experiences are really positive experiences. So I'd, I'd say they all, even though they might break you down, they, in the end, they build you up. That's the voice of TV's Dan Walker speaking to me, Marcus Jones, here on Premier Christian Radio. You're listening to The Profile, and we'll be hearing more from Dan right after this. Do you want to stay informed on the best of what's happening in the UK church today? Premier Christianity magazine is for you. The UK's leading Christian magazine is published every month and features interviews with Christian leaders, in-depth reporting, reviews, columnists and loads more. And best of all, you can try it for free. Head to our website now to request the latest edition worth £5.95, completely free of charge. Visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Dan, how easy do you find it to talk about faith? Because you are one of the uh, more high-profile Christians um, in this country, and often your faith has hit the headlines, whether it be your views about the Sabbath or your views about creation. How does it feel when people start to unpick your faith? Uh, I've never minded talking about it, but I'm also aware that you have to be careful about what you say and, and who you say it to, because increasingly I think it's very easy to twist words and take things out of context but all I'm trying to do is I'm just I try and do the job to the best of my ability I don't think I've in all the time I've been a broadcaster or a journalist I don't think I've ever shoved my faith down anyone's throat Um, I'm always willing to ask answer questions about it and um, I, I, I never mind about what people write about me or say about me um because again I suppose as a Christian I don't take my value from what people think about me I know that I'm valued um, and I can't control all those things hurtful hateful whatever they might be that people say about me about my family about you know my faith Um, and I'm I'm thankful that I've developed the skin of a rhino um, but I also think you know my job is just to do the best job that I can Um, and I'd like to think that my faith makes me a better broadcaster a better journalist and I always go back to the when people say what difference does it make to you well I think it was Martin Luther who said if you're going to be a the best cobbler and that sort of the how to be a great Christian cobbler it was the example I think was you don't put verses on all your shoes you just make the best shoes um so that that's that's how I see things really my job is just to do the job that I've been given to do to the best of my ability um and see what comes of that some doors have you know slammed in my face others have opened and I've 
wandered through and seen what's on the other side. So that, that's, I think that's, that's how I see it really. I don't, I don't see my job as any more difficult than anyone, anyone else's. Um, and I love it. You know, I really, I'm thankful for it. I feel very privileged to do it and I really enjoy it as well. So um, yeah, that's how I look at it. Where did faith begin for you then, Dan? Um, I suppose uh, when I was a young lad, sort of in my early teens, really, um, that's when I first started thinking in sort of great depth about my place in the universe, if you like. So I know that's a bit of a deep question to think about when you're only 12 or 13. But I just think it's an understanding of, um, for me, it was an understanding of who I was, who God was, and my what my relationship with Jesus Christ was and what, it, what I wanted that to look like, I think. Um, and I think when, the, when all those things came together, even though I was quite young at the time, I've made loads of mistakes since, as we all have. I think that was a really important time in terms of forming those relationships and forming those um, ideas, which have impacted me throughout my life, really. So, yeah, that was that was um, a very important time, I think, those sort of early teenage years. I want to talk about a person who you've never met, but I understand has had a pr profound impact on you and your faith. He gets a small mention um, in the book, the athlete uh, turned missionary, Eric Little. What was it about him that inspired you so much? Uh, the thing about him was, uh, I love learning a bit more about people who you hear about, but you don't necessarily know the full story. And I'd seen Chariots of Fire growing up and I've been interested in this bloke who, um, was a brilliant sprinter, didn't run in 100 metres because the final was on a Sunday and uh, ran in the 400 instead in the Paris Games of 1924 and won the gold medal. And I think those achievements on the track are one thing, but I, I became very interested in the little away from the track who gave up all that success and fame and went to be a missionary in China. And I remember reading some of the uh, people who had talked about how he'd acted in a prison of war camp he ended up in in China in the 1940s in the Second World War. Um, and how he had, you know, saved food and fed other people. How his faith and his demeanour and his character and personality made a real positive impact on other people in that prison of war camp. And um, ultimately, it's a story of sacrifice, Eric Liddles, because there's documentation that came to light in 2012 that he was offered in a prisoner exchange as a famous athlete to go back to the UK and Chinese um, prisoners would come back the other way. And um, he turned it down and he gave his place to a pregnant woman who went back and had her child and no doubt now has a, you know, a family descended from that family somewhere else in the UK. And Eric Little died, I think three months later in that prisoner of war camp. And, um, I just find that idea of sacrifice incredible, really, and quite inspiring to think that he could have easily acted in a different way when nobody would have known what, what had happened, but he acted in that way when nobody was watching. And um, that, to me, is a sign of a sort of real hero, thinking of others when it would have been so easy to think of himself. Following on from that, who or what inspires you in your faith today then? Um, 
it's the little for me i like the little things uh the small jobs that people do um for others and that i think that sort of comes back to the book really because like you say it's not it's not a faith book or a christian book i suppose there's faith in it because i've i've written it and I, I talk about how that makes me think and how it makes me feel. But I think it's talking to those remarkable people has reminded me of the importance of looking out for other people. And I think that is something which is naturally sits with um, people who have a faith, I think, um, you know, doing unto others as you would want done to yourself. And um, I really feel that this is one of the ways out of the, the current rut that we are in um, and the way that we're all feeling at the moment after this year is to look out for others on our right, on our left, um, you know, those down the street, round the corner, in our little communities, wherever we've been put. And to ask our friends and our family and our, you know, people we might come across in the street, are they okay and can we help? Um, and sometimes it's just a few words can make a huge difference. Uh, and it's, it's not it's not a book about random acts of kindness in any way, shape, or form. But it it has struck me that there are little things that make a huge difference to some people. When I organised um, a fly pass for an old bloke that a lovely fellow called Tony, who I met in the park here in Sheffield, who had been an eight year old in the park when he was um, during World War Two, and an American bomber had crashed in the park and. Uh, he'd been there and felt guilty about the fact that they couldn't land on the grass and they crashed into the hilly, hilly, hilly um, end of the park and all 10 men on board died. Tony felt guilty his whole life about that. And for many years, he's looked after a memorial in the park to these men. And I met him in 2019, asked him what he was doing there. And he told me this story um, and asked, is there anything I could do to help? He didn't know that I worked on TV or anything like that, but somehow it, panned out that in just a few few days I've got these incredible contacts I've spoken to the second in command of the RAF a general in the US Air Force and was waiting on a call back from the US ambassador to the UK and we'd organized this fly past in, in just a few days and um, Tony was in the park with 15,000 people on the day that it was broadcast on TV and watched by millions around the world as these 10 planes came over and he was holding the hand of the great niece of one of the men who'd been on the plane 75 years before and it's not so much that story that inspires me even though that part of it does but Tony and I were walking in the park about maybe two and a half months ago now and a lady came up to us and said um Dan Tony can I it's lovely to see you together can I just grab a word with you I said yeah of course what what, what is it she went uh I've been an alcoholic for 30 years and um I hope you don't mind me telling you this, but on the morning of the fly past, I was lying in bed at home, as I often do, just drinking. I've been drinking for most of the night. I switched on the telly and I saw what was happening in the park. I'd heard about it on the radio and the TV, and I thought, I'm going to go down there and see what's happening. So she came down, she said, and she stood at the front. She got there quite early and she saw all the people gathering and she heard all the interviews. And she said, I, I saw something that day in the unity, in the togetherness in the kindness in the conversations in the feeling of euphoria when these planes came over and the emotion that made me want to try again and I've not touched a drop of alcohol since she said 
And I remember looking across at Tony, he had little tears in his eyes, and he's a very proud Yorkshireman, he's hard to make cry. But he had these tears in his eye, and I was I had to sort of gulp for breath a little bit, and she said, I won't keep any more of your time, I just wanted to leave that with you and tell you this, small pebbles, big ripples. And that's not in the book, because it happened after I'd written it, but that to me is a really prime example of the impact that Tony has had on someone else's life. He knew nothing about this woman, but yet through what happened in the park that day and all these many people sort of coming together and helping to put on this incredible televisual event, which touched the lives of millions, there's one woman whose life has been turned around by witnessing that. And um, that just reminded me of, of the power of the, you know, the, the small pebble making the big yeah. ripples. And, and on one story that you know of, there I'm sure will be uh, many more. Precisely. And just want to go back a few stages on that. Though. In the book, if I'm uh, correct, you talk about the fact that um, you're running out of time and you kind of quickly just needed to get out with a dog. Um, <laughs> but you decided to ask a question um, to Tony, at, you know, how he was doing. I just wonder yeah. if there's a, a lesson for all of us there in terms of, you know, we've all got mad busy lives. There's, there's lots going on. But taking a small moment out can, like you say, have a huge effect. And, you know, we're not we don't all have access to, you know, uh, a TV producers and whatnot. But we can all make a difference. Should we put on? Yeah, uh, exactly. I think that's that's the other thing about that Tony story is uh, probably like you and like many other people listening to this is I spend far too much time on this. I'm holding up my phone, by the way, um, you know, when I'm walking my dog or in life in general. And that day I was really late for work. I promised my wife I'd walk the dog. I'd left everything really late. I was presenting match of the day that night. And um, so I, ran, I was running through the park that day. And I remember it was freezing cold. It was January, first week of January. And um, I just saw, I went on a different route because I was late. And I just saw Tony sort of um, brushing these leaves off the path in front of the memorial. And he was, his hands were shaking. He's got essential tremor. So, you know, he can't use a phone. He can't write use a pen or a keyboard his hands really shake all the time and so does his lips or his his um you know his his limbs sometimes and um i just saw him and even though i was in a rush i thought i felt compelled to ask him if he was all right so i just stopped for a moment and said are you okay and it literally started with that are you okay um and he started telling me why he was there and what he was doing and i started asking the other questions and i ran the loop of the park about another two minutes and I just couldn't stop thinking about him. So I went back and I asked him for his number and I checked the story out, did a bit of research, um, put it on social media and boom, off it went. So all that came from, you know, three words. Are you OK? Um, and I'm not, please don't think I'm saying that to say, hey, look at me. I asked an old guy what happened and we've, we've made a fly, fly pass because that's not what it's about. But I think out of that came so many incredible stories. And all of a sudden people started, you know, people got involved. It was like a huge DIY SOS type operation where everybody started offering to help. And the, I suppose the legacy of that, which I love more than anything else is down in our local park still in Enclave Park in Sheffield. There's a memorial still there, all very nicely tidied up these days with new plants and flags and uh, flower pots and a new tarmac road which the council paid for 
And next to the memorial is a flagpole. And flagpoles cost a lot of money. I, I never realised how expensive a flagpole was. But the flagpole has been half paid for by two different organisations. One is one of the biggest companies in the world, Boeing, this huge multinational. And the other half of the flagpole was paid for by Birkdale School, which is a school, a primary, the primary class in the school just around the corner from the park. And that, to me, shows you the appeal of that story. You know, a, a class of primary school kids to one of the biggest multinational companies in the world. Um, everybody was on board with it. I even had an old lady called Beryl offering to cook flapjacks for everybody who turned up in the park for the fly past. It was one of those things that I think people saw Tony and in Tony they saw their own granddad. Um, you know, the old man that they see in the park who they've never spoken to or the old person who needs their help and they might not be able to help them, but they can help him. And um, it was really a story which resonated with first hundreds, then thousands, and then millions of people all around the world. And um, it's changed his life in a lovely way. And I think when I look back on it now and think about it, I think he's had just as much of an impact on me as, as I've had on him. He keeps thanking me for all the things, but uh, he's probably, like I said, had as much of a positive impact on me than, than, than I and everyone else has had on him. I just want to touch on your um, career then. In, in the book, you say that you live in um, the life that you dreamed of growing up. Um, what would you credit in terms of um, how you've got to where you are now? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, well, I work hard. Um, I don't, I'm always convinced there's other people out there who could do the job that I'm doing just as well, if not better than, than I can. Um, I think... Like I said earlier, I think doors have opened and I've sort of wandered through them. I was going to be a teacher. Um, that's what I dreamt of doing. I had a brilliant history teacher at school um, and I wanted to be like him. I was going to teach history in PE. I got turned down for a PGCE for being too immature. And um, I got a job um, at the same time. I thought, well, hold me. That was, I thought that was all part of the plan. Um, and at the same time, I got turned down. I thought, well, this is my one opportunity to live my childhood dream and be a commentator or a presenter. Um, so I applied for a postgraduate course in broadcast journalism after doing a degree in history. I got on the course and as part of that course, I entered a commentary competition, which I won. I got a job in local radio. I got a day's work experience in local radio on the back of that. And that led to, you know, two weeks work and eventually that led to a job and that was my way in. So being turned down for doing a PGCE um, I mean, I was immature. I wasn't immature on the day, but I did drop my trousers during the interview. It's probably not the best thing to do. The reason why is because one of the one of the interviewees was nice, and the other one was a bit horrible. And the horrible one spotted that I had red socks on and said, "I notice your socks, and you strike me as the sort of teacher who would be a really good friend to the kids, but not teach them anything." And I took great, rightly so, I think I took great offence at that. I said, "Hold on a minute." He said, you're judging all that from the colour of my socks. And I said, the reason why I've got red socks on is I've got my full football kit on underneath this suit that I borrowed for this interview um, because I'm playing football for the university later on today in a, in a really important match. And I, I decided for some reason to stand up and drop my trousers to show her that I had shorts and socks on underneath. And um, I just saw her lift her pen and sort of <laughs> a few big crosses on my application form. And, and that was the end of that. But... Um, as that door closed, another one opened. Um, so I think if I look, if you'd have told me, you know, 15, 20 years ago that I'd be sat here talking to you, talking about 
having written a book about all these amazing people that I've met, um, having a seat presenting the most watched breakfast program in the UK and the opportunity to present the number one football magazine program and do a show about the NFL and, you know, go on programs as varied as would I lie to you countdown and all these amazing programs that I love to watch. And my kids are really excited about, I'm, I genuinely would not have believed you. I don't entirely know how I've got here, but um, I'm enjoying the ride. Fantastic. Final two questions. Um, firstly, whenever we see kind of um, uh, high profile Christians, you often kind of um, wish them well, want to know how to pray for them. What would you say to those listening now in terms of how they can be praying for you and others who are in similar uh, situations? Obviously, in the book, you talk about you know, the difficulties of being away from your family, traveling around the world. But is yeah. there something specific that we can be praying for? Um, well, thank you for the question to start with. Um, I think the important thing from my perspective is that I would do a good job because I think that sort of encompasses everything really, because doing a good job means I do it in the right way. Um, and also I think to touch on something that I mentioned earlier, to come back to that is the importance of maintaining perspective in this occasional weird life where there is a real um, tendency, I think, to consider yourself to be more important than you are. So I think perspective, um, a sense of who I am and where I am in the world and being able to continue to do my job to the best of my ability. Um, and I think from, you know, the other people, um, other Christians in, in various walks of life who I've met, I think that's, that sort of encompasses all that they can hope for really. And also to say that I have been greatly encouraged by um, some of the things that, you know, people have sent to me over the years or uh, messages, sometimes very short, but very pertinent and very encouraging. And I think that has, that has really lifted my spirits on occasion. So it really does make a difference. Um, and I know sometimes I've been in very difficult situations where, you know, you're struggling for the right words and I don't always get it right, but I do feel that I've been greatly encouraged along the way by many people who I've never met. Um, and that's a game changer. Hmm. Just to bring this interview full circle then, we started by kind of talking about uh, 2020 and the difficult year that it's been. And there will be lots listening um, now for whom the last year has been particularly tough. They might have um, lost people or been ill themselves. In the book, you refer to a, a song that you keep coming back to. Just um, unpack that for us, what that song has meant to you and how it might be something that will help others too. Yeah, I'll I'm, I'm read it for you because I've, I was trying to, in the end, right, I was trying to write, I thought, oh, there's so many songs that I, I love music, um, not particularly good singer, but, you know, I can fiddle about on a guitar, but there's a there's a, a song which we sing in church, which I mentioned at the end of um, the book, which is something that I sort of have come back to on several occasions. I, I, I love sort of lyrics and have a great admiration for people who are able to put into words what, you know, lots of us are thinking. And um, oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer, which I'm sure many of people listening to this will, will know well and will have sung themselves. And there's one verse in that which I find particularly um, 
relevant, I suppose, for the book that I've written, this remarkable people. It says, my song when enemies surround me, my hope when tides of sorrow rise, my joy when trials are abounding, your faithfulness, my refuge in the night. Um, and I, I think as, a, as the author of this book, I spent a lot of time thinking about how I would have responded to some of the challenges that the people in this book have faced. Um, and I think if you get if you get stuck in feeling that life should be perfect, I think that's a, that's that can be a really negative place to be, because there are trials, there are difficulties, there are real points where you might feel like giving up, and you might feel that there is no help and no support. But it's songs like that that I always come back to, um, which remind me of the truths that don't change um, and the things that you can hold on to even when you think all hope is lost. Um, and I think that really is the truth for me, which is the foundation of all the stories in the book. Um, and that's, that's when I said, when you asked me earlier about why my strength was uh, you asked me earlier about why my faith was strengthened. And I think that song and particularly that verse summarise why that's the case, because in the storms of life, in the great difficulties that we all face at various times, and particularly this year, I'm very thankful that there are some things that don't change and there are still some things that you can hold on to with everything you've got and they can lift you up and give you a strength which you never felt that you had or could have. And um, that to me is life-changing, life-affirming truth. That was TV's Dan Walker speaking to me, Marcus Jones, here on Premier Christian Radio. We hope you enjoyed this interview. For hundreds more conversations like this, you can download the profile as a podcast. Just search for the profile wherever you normally get your podcasts or visit premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile.